You're listening to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell, and I'm glad you're with me. You know, it's tough to believe that there's anyone left in the country who hasn't noticed that rising prices are out there. I mean, the question is, at what point does it impact you personally, though? That's when we'll really care. Now, for many people, it already has. Polls suggest maybe half of us. But I get the impression that most of us don't know why the prices have been moving up significantly for over a year. And I'll get more on that in a moment. Plus, a stock trader, Tyler Bullhorn, is going to drop by to talk about some straightforward indicators and, well, some help, some tools you can use to figure out when is it a good time to buy stocks on weakness? Because we've seen a lot of weakness, especially in that sort of mid-tech area. Also, he's going to give us some rich management techniques that are going to come in handy. As some analysts are discussing, what now, a three-quarter of a percent rise in interest rates at the next central bank meeting? We'll talk with Victor Bear about that, too. And speaking of interest rates, I'm going to go all financial on you. It's a warning in the shocking stat of the week. But it is answer to this question. What personally keeps me up at night? What am I most worried about in terms of risk in the financial system? I'll answer that in the shocking stat. And you don't want to miss the quote of the week by a well-known epidemiologist on the political poisoning of the COVID response. And I'll tell you, you're not going to hear this anywhere else in the country. And this week's Goofy, well, I promise, it'll stir the pot. And it's about time. But first, I want you to think about this. we got record energy prices, 30-year highs in inflation, food shortages, the Ukraine invasion, of course, huge volatility in the investment markets, along with the biggest losses in the bond market since stats were first taken in the mid-70s. I mean, we're talking something in the neighborhood of $2 trillion. Do you really think, though, it's business as usual? Because our political leaders and so many in the commentariat seem oblivious to these kind of changes. Actually, maybe they're just way over their head. Because everywhere you look, the fallout, whether it's from the pandemic or the geopolitical problems we've got, well, the fallout that we're dealing with, first and foremost, is financial and economic. But you know what? Our leaders and a lot of the commentary don't do economics and finance. And as I continue to say, hey, we're paying the price. In order to protect yourself financially, though, paying attention would be the first step. A couple of quick examples. I bet you didn't hear, well, it was this week, thanks to the Canadian Taxpayers Association Freedom of Information request, that the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation has again put up another $200,000 to study reducing or eliminating the personal exemption on your home. By my count, I think that's the third study the government's paid for in the last three years. And as I've warned on Money Talks, hey, governments are desperate for money, and real estate's arguably the prime target. But how about this, right, right out of the news this week? The latest inflation numbers. The March inflation rate, 6.7%, means that we pay, what, just under $107 for the same stuff we paid 100 bucks for last year. But here's the thing, that works out to an extra $78 a week for the average Canadian. And at this rate, if this inflation keeps up, that works out to over $4,000 more per year. 4000 and if you've heard my shocking stat last week, you know that's not the end of the story because we have to earn about $5,200 first, then you pay your income tax to get the money left over before we get that $4,000 plus left over. And got nothing in return, by the way. We didn't get a better lifestyle, no, because we were buying just the same things we bought a year ago. Maybe you can afford it, I know that. But that's not the case with 49% of Canadians who Ipsos just polled for MNP. Well, they're within... 
200 bucks of not making ends meet at the end of the month. 31% of Canadians say they're already there. They're at the financial edge. They can't afford more price increases. It seems that a huge number of Canadians have yet to wake up, though, to the fact that a significant amount of that rise in our cost of living is a direct result of government policy. Well, not surprisingly, politicians don't want us to make the connection, especially when it comes to something like a hot-button issue like gasoline or housing, where the three levels of government add tens of thousands of dollars in costs to the price of a new home in terms of levies or permit delays and taxes. I'll give you just one little example. The GST is added to the overall price of a new build, whether it's a condo or house. But that's on top of the contractor who's already paid GST on materials, paid it on well, PSC in every province except for uh, Alberta. But they're also paying GST on labor when they're building it. So that gets into the total sale price. Then you pay GST. Well, it's the same with gas prices where government taxes, levies, well, they add, depending on where you live, about about 30% to the cost. And by the way, in March, March gas prices were up 39% plus compared to a year ago. In large part, though, thanks to green energy policies that aggressively discouraged investment in new oil and gas production. And now you've got the Russian sanctions exacerbating that problem. And then April 1st, hey, we got a carbon tax increase. I mean, politicians talk about, in their words, making life more affordable. I mean, it's laughable. It should be obvious, given the amount, uh, massive increase in energy, by the way, and food prices, and your overall cost of living, that government isn't the solution, it's the problem. I mean, the massive increase in commodity prices, the push for higher wages that I'll talk with Mike Levy about in a few minutes, and the supply chain issues because of COVID lockdowns in China, well, that is going to continue to put upward pressure on prices. If you're worried, well, you're right, you should be. And if you're not, reconsider. Look at the price changes we're seeing, the volatility, housing, food, energy, stocks, uh, currencies, bond market. It's telling us something. It's telling us we're living in a period of historic change. And we better pay attention. Hey, just one thing before I get on with the show, and I know it's a brief note here, but I have to comment on the passing of Jim Dines, the legendary analyst. He's been a good friend to our show here. He's the author of numerous must-read books on investing, including the one that keeps coming to mind for me is The Invisible Crash and Mass Psychology. He's the originator of many technical tools and a courageous commentator. His ability to recognize new emerging trends has been nothing short of brilliant. Whether we are talking uranium, whether we're talking the original internet bug, whether we're talking about gold at times or stocks, his track record speaks for itself. But I'm not talking about track records today. I'm talking about the man, Jim Dines. I'll tell you, I feel privileged to have known him. Wonderful that he shared his expertise with our audience on so many different occasions, including at the World Outlook Conference. And I guess I just have to sum it up by saying, I will miss him greatly. Well, as I've been alluding to and been alluding to for well over a year is that the cost of living is going up. What I find, as I say, and I know I repeat this, but I find it confusing that when you look at surveys and it's been consistent over a number of months saying the number one concern for the public is rising cost of living. 
Well, that's what the inflation numbers measure. That's what you're measuring when you complain at the grocery store or the gas tank, whatever it is. But there's another side to that equation that I want to bring Michael Levy in for. Mike, as uh, we know that the inflation just really is like taking a pay cut. So we have to look at the other side of the equation is are, are people having their wages? And I know it's a, a generalized question, but are people's wages in any way keeping up with the level of inflation? Mike, they're not, uh, not, not by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, wages are stagnating. Now, you wouldn't say stagnating two or three or five or eight years ago when wage increases were one, one and a half or 2% if you were lucky a year. But now we're talking three, three and a half percent. And they're stagnating simply because there's a huge disconnect between inflation and wage growth. And uh, people are now asking for, workers are now asking for three, three and a half percent. And as far as it comes with the government, they're getting turned down when you take a look at the government employees union, maybe in the private sector. Well, even in the private sector, you're seeing some pushback, but at least the moves in wages are a little more. But you cannot have inflation at 6.7 percent and wage increases somewhere between two and a half and three and a half percent and hope to even just barely keep up, but you're not. You're going to go negative. And Doug Porter, the chief economist at BMO Capital Markets, just says there's a significant disconnect between wage growth and rising inflation. And, and Mike, just one more thing. As wages go up, the inflation they think might have peaked is not going to peak because wages then become an integral part of the inflation picture. Yeah, and that's an important point. I mean, as wages go up, obviously, wherever possible, those wage increases get passed along to the consumer. So, ergo, you've got inflationary pressure even further with that. But it's it's an interesting dynamic here. I mean, this is gets to the heart of people's personal finance, is money is what can you can buy with your money? Well, we're buying less and less with our money. And again, I know I've made this point before, Mike, but it bears repeating that next year we're going to get new inflation numbers, but they'll be compared to this year. So the overall cost of living, though, over, say, a two to three year period is going to be significant, much like the housing market. Yeah, maybe the housing market goes up 20 percent in 2021, but that's on top of the rise we got, and especially in the second half of 2020, get another rise in 2022. It's all compounding. So, I mean, this is really, uh, really big time. I keep saying, as I've said editorially, is that you know, we keep on raising the level of income where you feel the negative impact. It started at maybe the lower levels of, in, uh, of income. Man, we're just pushing that higher and higher as these rates continue up. Oh, well, Mike, and the other thing I'm looking at, you were talking with Mark about it, Mark uh, it last week, is, is that the, the fact is, is that we are going to continue to see inflation. This was Mark's point of view. Oil prices are not going to come down anytime soon. Base metal prices are not going to come down anytime soon. In other words, we are going to keep adding to inflation. And Scotiabank's Derek Holt says that even though the Bank of Canada is uh, calling for only half-point rate hikes officially throughout the year, he is now taking a look against his bank, uh, Scotiabank's official a view of, of what's going to happen with bank rates and interest rates. He says we could have a Goliath bank rate hike of three quarters of percent or one percent at a sitting. And that could carry on because he doesn't see the cap on inflation that maybe some of the other economists are seeing. 
But that's the big debate. I mean, that's the one that it's not going to be resolved. That's, in fact, what, of course, the Bank of Canada is looking at. At what point do the rises in uh, interest rates, and the consensus is a half point, as you just said, though, Mr. Holt, thinking that may be higher in the June meeting. Well, at what point does that actually choke the housing market off? Of course, we talked to Ozzy about that stuff. Uh, What does it choke off other aspects of the economy? It won't choke off the rise in oil prices. It's not related. But we still see at what point do you sort of slow the economy. So I still think with Russian sanctions, by the way, and of course with the China lockdown, I mean, that's our biggest demand for commodities that I think things still are in play. That could be the sort of black swan events that actually cause central banks to not raise as much. I don't have the answer to that. I'm just saying that's what the question is. Well, Mike, if you take a look back historically, we're in pretty good shape. You go back to the 70s and 80s, and the bank rate in February 1973 was 4.5%. That today, we would be blowing our brains out at 4.5%. Well, that spiraled to 7% in October 73, 9% in 74 August, all the way up, Mike, to August 1981, the bank rate. The Bank of Canada rate was 19.38%. So relatively speaking, it's pretty easy to say, all right, two, three, four percent We can live with that. But you know what? It was really tough back then. And it would be comparable if our bank rate starts to go up to four and a half or five percent. You would feel some of that 18% pain that they felt in the 80s. And, of course, relative amount of debt's important. We've got record amount of personal debt. But let me just throw one other thing. You know how you know someone's gotten old? They talk about their health, and they talk about, I remember when those bank rates were 19%. <laughs> Mike, if I could have a buck for every time I've told someone about my first mortgage being whatever it was, 12 and three quarters, I'd be rich right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there, you and I have answered the bell. That's right. August 1981, which many of our listeners won't even have been born then, but it was over 19%. One of the things that kills me most when I look back on financial decisions I've made, and there's been good and there's been bad, was, oh my gosh, did I wish I locked into a Government of Canada bond at 13% at that time. You could have had like 20 years at 13%. I didn't, by the way, I didn't, but I'm just saying. So there we go. Sign that both of us are old guys. We're not talking about our health, though, but we are talking about the old-time interest rates. Okay, okay. So, so Mike, one last one last comment. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. And we, we did none of the three. Have a good weekend, Michael. Thanks, Mike. Time now for the quote of the week. I think the polarization, the politicization of COVID started literally, I think it was within days of the announcement in March 2020 of the lockdown. And then you got this stream of PREF conferences that I think increasingly resembled campaign stops. And it was under political pressure, and we we watched health officers remain silent in the face of things like Black Lives Matter protests that completely ignored social distancing and mask mandates. I think it's because it was politically expedient. They remained silent as politicians actually called elections, ignoring rising case counts of COVID. I mean, vaccine mandates, which originally and forcefully were rejected by the government until polls showed that they could be used for political advantage. I mean, there's many more examples. But let me get to my quote of the week by someone who government actually called upon during the pandemic. Dr. Amish Adalja is a senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. He's an epidemiologist and a virologist. Well, this week he was on Bloomberg and he was asked about the damage to the healthcare industry, but more healthcare security going forward, given that the question of when and where to wear masks 
have become more political than it was sort of a tool of science, as they were originally intended to be. His answer in quotes, that's the story of the whole pandemic. Everything we've talked about from antiviral to monoclonal antibodies to masks have all been viewed through the lens of whatever tribe that someone belongs to. And we're increasingly tribalists in everything we do. And that's where masks have become. Instead of being viewed as a tool that people can use to decrease their transmission and spread, and it does make a big difference, but if the population doesn't trust health authorities and thinks that politics are all infused in it, they're not going to listen every time you need to make a recommendation that people do certain proactive actions for COVID or the next pandemic when it occurs. And I think that's the long tail of this pandemic, that we've created this breach between public health professionals, infectious disease doctors, and the general public that they'll never trust this again, and it's going to take a long time. He was then asked, but how do we get that trust back? In quotes, I think we have to be transparent about where the mistakes of the public health communication happened, how politics got infused during the successive administrations through this response, and people have got to go back to their primary care doctors and think about why they trust them. Well, I can tell you one of the main differences between the response to the pandemic and how we interact with our primary care doctors is that the government, aided by the media, decided no questions of the narrative were allowed, period. That's not how you build trust. I can't even imagine someone going into their primary care doctor and getting recommended for some treatment or not and not having a few questions about it. But that's the attitude that was taken, no questions allowed. Give me an example. March 20th, Dr. Teresa Tom stated, uh, 2020, I should have said, that in quotes, there's no need to use a mask for well people. Well, two months later, she declared a non-medical mask can reduce the chance of your respiratory droplets coming into contact with others and landing on surfaces. As is what's become a, a really was a regular feature of the pandemic. Boy, with Aunt, Dr. Anthony Fauci, he owned up to what's called a noble lie and that the no mask statements were actually made just to make sure that the uh, public didn't buy up the available supply. Well, that doesn't build trust. A final word to Dr. Aldalja in quotes. The politics has got so infused into public health now that it becomes people thinking this is what this political party, like this is what a liberal thinks or this is what a conservative thinks. In the U.S., this is what a Democrat or a Republican's position and not the fact that there is a reality-based position on those issues, end of quote. Well, if you're a regular listener to uh, money talks, you know that I believe that you should have sort of this core position, uh, whether it's in silver or in gold. And the reason is, once things start to move, and we've seen that in so many commodities, our fertilizer is a nightmare, you know, they go up so quickly, it's tough to get on board. But there's more to talk about now. It seems like every every day, every week, I get more stuff on that. And so I thought I'd ask Jason Weber to come on. He's CEO of Alianza. Uh, Jason, first of all, I do appreciate you taking the time and did want to talk to you a little bit about the gold silver market, but maybe a little more emphasis on silver. So let me just start with your broad take on what's going on in those markets. Well, it's uh, thanks for having me on, Mike. It's great to be here. And just I, I can't say anything, but it's kind of a in uh, very interesting time for the precious metals. It's uh, there's so much going on in the world right now. The inflation post COVID We've got um, all this uh, political unrest uh, with what's going on in Ukraine and, and Russia. And, and for me, that all adds up to a strong precious metals market. And uh, you talk to a lot of people who know this side of the business, 
And they often say, well, when, when these factors all come together, well, gold and silver should just automatically go up and, and, and stay up, but it never works that way. And, and as we know, uh, it gets really choppy and it gets volatile and it's, um, you know, it, it gets um, a bit crazy in, in the outset. And I think that's where we are right now. So my view going forward, I think, is very positive for the precious metals. And we're in a period of time here where we're going to see volatility. Uh, we're going to see sideways movement for a while and, and people are going to kind of lose faith. But I, I think as we move forward, the factors all point to gold and silver uh, performing very strongly in the next few years. Uh, let me come to silver for a sec. I would say if you had asked me, uh, I'm not sure if I woke up tomorrow and it was $30, I wouldn't be surprised. There's an example. Um, but if it was at $18, I'd be shocked and I'd buy, you know, as an example. So, I, but I think I'm in that camp that thought we'd see a little more strength, especially on the silver side of things. Um, it's not been bad. It's been, a, you know, a pretty good performance, but why do you think that is, or what are you specifically focusing on silver for a moment? It's tough to say, Mike, but I think it really comes down to the fact that often when gold and silver move, uh, silver tends to lag and then outperform. And, and to the downside, it tends to overreact to the downside and then sort of come back to stabilize. It seems to be more volatile in my experience. And I think that's that's borne out over time. So I think we're kind of in that period right now where silver just hasn't caught up to gold quite yet. Um, and I think we'll see that. And of course, when it does, it kind of moves right through it and, and will move further to the upside. And I, I really expect to, to see that happen. Uh and usually silver is a byproduct. You're not always, of course. You know, it's it's not always, you know, at times it's it's the primary. There's some fantastic companies that way. But a lot of times it's the sort of byproduct of the gold, you know, mining. And, and I'm wondering if that has an impact too, or it certainly should, you know, when I'm looking at if I want silver exposure, I've got to keep in mind that. Uh, absolutely. You know, as a as a geologist, we we find silver with, all kinds of deposits, uh, you know, gold especially, but you can find it in uh, copper deposits as well. Um, it's, lead zinc deposits often have a significant amount of silver with them. So we do see it a as a byproduct, in, and I think you're exactly right with that. That, that does impact it uh, somewhat. But as you said, there are some, uh, there are some very um, interesting silver primary producers out there that I think provide great leverage. Well, also as Alianza and, and anybody else in the business, I mean, you're not making decisions based on spot silver prices, you know, today's prices of gold or silver, or we could have an oil company in here or anything. So you're looking on a broader trend over over time. Why? Because, well, let me ask you this. How long does it take uh, to go from the discovery stage to the production stage? Because this is something that we're so naive about when it comes to the metals that we're going to need for renewable energy, as an example of which silver's one. Yeah, we used to say it was sort of seven to 10 years. Uh, I think you measure that in decades now. Uh, wow. I think it's uh, it's such a an environment where, you know, regulation uh, just slows everything down. And, and, and some of that's for good. I, obviously, environmental regulations are, are uh, a good thing to have in place. But you know, that level of scrutiny that a project goes through now from discovery to production is is a much, much higher level than it was 
uh, a generation ago. So we, I tend to think that these things are looking at decades to go into, into production, unless you're in a scenario where you have a deposit that is found proximal to an operating mine. Uh, and I think that really is an advantage for shareholders in a company that, that has a discovery like that, because you can, you can somewhat fast track it. You don't have to build all the infrastructure and all the permitting that goes around that. That's already in place. Let me talk about you guys for a second, Alianza, because I know uh, that you've got a, a, a wonderful discovery up in the Yukon. Um, when you, once you've got to that point, what's next? Do you start looking for, okay, I'm going to raise more capital to put it in production? Or as you just said, and I love your point you're making, people should be aware of it. If you're in a region where the infrastructure is already you know, somewhat built out, that's a much you know, fast, uh, faster track. Yeah, and it's you know if you look at uh, our, our our discovery in the Yukon, it's it's one where you know, we've got Alexco Resources right next door to us, actively mining at their Kino Hill uh, deposits, and of course this district is uh, it's one of the highest grade and, and largest silver producers uh, in Canada and North America. It's been around for over a hundred years, so there's infrastructure in place that that we could piggyback off of. But um, we are actually looking to, to find our own own mine, something that could be standalone. And then the fallback is that if you don't find big enough deposits, you've got something you can you can sell into. So for us, you know, then we are still in the very early stages of uh, developing a deposit at what we call our Haldane project in the Kino Hill district. So for us, it's it's now. Uh, we have to raise a bit more capital to start building out the discovery discovery we announced uh, in uh, early 2020. Uh, we've been very fortunate with some excellent drill holes to to build on on the high grade intersections we made, but there's still there's still a lot of work left to do there, which also means I think there's a lot upside for shareholders who who want to get involved. I'm wondering if, if, if though, I'm seeing a, a broader recognition here of the need for something like silver uh, for renewables. You know, if we're going to go, like, it just, it's incredible to me that it seems to be just dawning on people if we're going to do electric vehicles, if we're going to do renewable energy. Oh, you're actually going to need some minerals for that. And uh, I, I give you one just anecdotally, talking to someone uh, this week, younger person, and I sort of just said, do you have any idea of the minerals that are involved in your cell phone? And I've talked in the past about plastic, which, of course, is a petro, uh, uh, a petro product. But no, they had no clue. I said, well, you know, gold's in there, right? You got that. <laughs> you know, you got silver in there. You, you understand that? Obviously, lithium battery, they did get that. But I'm saying, you know, you got copper, lead, nickel. Like, it was just, and it's funny, I'm just wondering if that it's dawning on people that it makes it easier because they know the demand's going to be there, you know, uh, because of the renewable. And so it makes it easier to finance stuff. Well, and, you know, when people talk about silver uh, and, and copper to some extent, and they're a little worried about the, the price forecast going forward, as you uh, look at the, you know, inflation, maybe the economy slows down, that, and that's going to affect, you know, demand for industrial metals, which, you know, silver is one. Uh, th that is a that is a fear that these prices are going to get soft, but that green greening of the economy, the the electrification of the economy or of the of our industries, moving away from uh, gas engines towards electric vehicles, all that I think is going to 
um, somewhat stabilize those prices. I don't think that that green movement's going away. And I think that's going to provide some insulation for these uh, these industrial metals that are so required for that that green movement. So I, I actually think that demand is going to remain strong. And and uh, I'm not even talking about the supply side. We just don't find deposits like we used to. So we've already are seeing somewhat of a decline in supply just because we don't find deposits as frequently as we used to. And now you're going to throw demand on top of that. It's uh, I think it sets up very nicely for them. Well, it's a fascinating space. And uh, Jason, I appreciate you allow us to come and call on you, uh, you know, with some frequency about finding out what's going on from the ground from somebody who's there doing the job. Uh, Jason Weber, CEO of Alianza. Uh, Jason, thank you. Thank you very much, Mike. Pleasure to be here. I'm watching incredible volatility in the markets. I mean, obviously, Thursday, Friday, we're a, a weekday. But it begs this question. Should I be buying on this weakness or should I just be standing aside? So I thought, hey, why don't we get Tyler Bullhorn on? Because Tyler, of course, does stockscores.ca. It's great to have him on with us here. Uh, Tyler, I, I've got a lot of questions for you. And, and by the way, I want to tell people that if you go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, Tyler's got a webinar happening here about 15 minutes past the end of the show. You can get right on there. So it's today, but it's uh, mikesmoneytalks.ca. Jump on. There's a lot of uh, questions. And all of it comes back to, uh, literally, this is a volatile environment. We want to protect ourselves. We want to get the opportunities. So, Tyler, uh, so let me just throw that right at you right from the get-go. And that is, okay, so I'm looking at the market. We've got some significant weakness, uh, like we've had you know, dramatic falls in some of the biggest tech stock names. Uh, or popular tech stocks names. And I'm just going, when do I know if that's a buy or man, stand aside? Well, you have to differentiate between weakness in the context of a longer term upward trend and weakness in, in downward trends. So we're seeing a lot of these tech names, they've been you know, moving lower for months. They are in downward trends. And so trying to buy those is like trying to catch a falling knife. By the same token, though, in the commodity space in the last three or four trading sessions, we've had weakness, but that weakness is inside a long-term upward trend. So there's an opportunity there to buy things that are on sale that are good. We don't want to buy bad things that are on sale. We want to buy good stocks that are on sale. And so I think the commodity stocks, and I'm not necessarily saying today, there may be a little bit more weakness to come. But you want to watch for breaks of those pullbacks. In terms of trying to bottom fish the really weak stocks, the tech stocks, the biotech, you can do that as well, but it's a different technique. What you need to do is first see those downward trends broken, and then the build of a rising bottom on their chart. So in other words, a, a retest of weakness that doesn't go to a new low, and then a breakup from the rising bottom. So the, the idea of trying to buy things on sale is definitely a good one. I love that. But you have to do it in different ways based on the longer term trend for that sector or group. Okay. So first you determine, okay, has the long term uptrend been broken? Has that changed? You know, so as, you know, as anyone who listened to the show knows, I think there's a long term uptrend in both oil and in other commodities. I love copper, you know, lithium price. Uh, there's such a long list. So I've established my macro view, so now I've got to look and see if any of those trend lines have been broken. 
Correct. And so, you know, despite the weakness in oil the last few days of this past week, it is still in an upward trend. And, you know, oil stocks have gone on sale three or four times in the upward trend that started a little over a year ago. So those are the times to buy those stocks. Don't chase them when they run up and away from the trend line. That's the, the fear of missing out trade. We don't want to do that. We want to wait for a little bit of weakness, a little bit of uncertainty, some profit taking in those long-term upward trends. So on oil, the long-term upward trend is still intact. But tech stocks, they broke their long-term upward trend late last year. You know, Netflix broke down in December of 2021. And it's been a thing to avoid since then because it switched from an upward trend into a downward trend. And now any attempt to buy has been trying to catch a falling knife and that has failed. It is interesting, eh, how difficult it is for people generally to adjust their thinking, you know, whether they're sort of an, um, uh, an inflationary mindset, for example, or a deflationary one, or we're in a low interest rate environment. Oh, maybe we're not. As you say, techs are everything. And, uh, you know, despite warnings about that sort of mid-tier that had gone crazy, and, and despite a lot of evidence that that was over. I mean, we've been talking about that, I think, since August of last year, uh, that that was over. And I know on stockscores.ca, you've been warning people about that kind of thing, showing them, in fact, how to take advantage of that kind of thing. But it is interesting how difficult it is to get people to switch, to change their minds, kind of when you're talking about these major trends that they've been sort of hammered to think are, are in play. Yeah, I think what people sometimes make the mistake of doing is trying to be smart. And the stock market, whether it's right or wrong, is always smarter than you because there are millions of people voting in the stock market. And what you have to learn to do is listen to the message of the market. And that's why you know, I just go back to stock charts so often because it shows me what people are doing with their money. I don't really care what people say they're doing. I want to know what they are doing what those big investors are doing. You know, you get these big investors that come on CNBC, they say one thing, well, they might very well be doing something very different with their capital. And you can't lie in the stock market. It shows up in trading activity. So let's just listen to the market, learn how to listen. I can show you some really simple techniques with a pencil and a ruler to identify what the trend is, where the opportunities are, and what to avoid as well. And as I say, you're going to be, that's why the webinar is actually a more effective way than what we can do, because it's just audio here. And, I, you know, obviously there's limitations, but in the webinar, you can actually show those techniques because you can show charts, you can show what you're looking at. And the other thing that you've done a brilliant job of over the years is showing people how straightforward it is that, you know, they don't have to back away and put their hands up. I don't do that kind of thing. No, it is that straightforward. And, and at least your ability to convey that comes through loud and clear. Yeah, today I'll teach six things that you need to understand. And if you can understand six things, none of them are deep financial concepts. It really is just visual. Um, and if, again, if you can take out a pencil and a ruler, you can analyze anything in five seconds. What I also should have, uh, I could have alluded to, but I want to now is uh, you wrote a book called The Mindless Investor that I know was sold out. Uh, I thought it was a terrific explanation of how to approach the markets and the way you're describing. And again, straightforward, but it's called The Mindless Investor. Unfortunately, it's sold out, but you can get it as an ebook. And I would really recommend that. First of all, it's fun. I, I'm serious. It's like people say, well, I don't invest. Well, you want a new hobby? It's fun. It is fun to look at this because you know why? It's fun to make money. 
And obviously, you know, when you saw the huge explosion in Robinhood, a lot of people agreed with that. You know, I mean, just the amount of trading and the amount of people who got involved. But if, if you're not, uh, I, and I don't care what age you are. In fact, maybe even more fun if you're older because other, say, activities may not be available the way they used to be. Well, so that I think the mindless investor actually does a great job with that, which you can just go to stock scores. Well, can you get it at stockscores.com and CA? Doesn't matter. Uh, stockscores.com is the best, and you can yeah. order the book online. But everyone that comes to any of these webinars that I'm doing next week and starting with the first one after the show today, I'm going to email that to them for free. So, oh, that's right there, you're going to save 10 bucks. Well, also, though, you're going to get, uh, as I say, I, I, I'm not just blowing smoke here. You've done a brilliant job of educating people in a way that is understandable, straightforward. If they adopted these techniques, it would give a, really a lot of other stuff to their arsenal. You know, and, and I give you one example of that, Tyler, that I know you talk about. But it's, you know, we're all fighting our emotions. I mean, I, I'd hate to think of how much money that I've spent learning about my emotions. You know, it's the old uh, Bernard Baruch line. If you don't know who you are, the markets are an expensive place to find out. And I've got, a, I've got some, uh, we should do a seminar once and I'll just tell stories of where I've lost money because of it. <laughs> but, but, you know, and that's again, for, you know, the techniques that you're applying here are straightforward, but boy, does it help, help rescue me from my emotions. Yeah, you know, uh, human beings are predisposed to fail in the stock market because we have an emotional attachment to money. Mm -hmm. As long as you're a normal human being, you have to learn to overcome that. And I think every investor, every trader needs to have a plan. And the plan doesn't have to be complex. You don't have to go to business school. You really have to just know some simple concepts that will keep you out of trouble and focus you in on the groups in the market that are the best place to be. And I'll try to show that today. It's always easier visually, as you say. But, uh, you know, just some basic lessons that I've been teaching for 25, 30 years. If you apply those things, you're going to be a much better off investor and not feel that emotional pain of uh, not only losing money, but tying your capital up in losers while you wait for them to turn around. I mean, that's a huge waste of time and money as well. Yeah, I think everyone's got lessons to learn. I mean, you know, I, I, I've never come across anyone. Uh, Peter Grandich does a wonderful job, uh, you know, in his book, Confessions of a Wall Street Whiz Kid, where and he's a very honest, authentic guy. And, and he will talk to you much more about mistakes he's made than any good calls he's had or anything of that sort. And I'm, it, that also reminds me, I saw a guy named Dan Millman years ago, and you might remember, uh, he wasn't a stock guy, but you might remember his book, The uh, Peaceful Warrior, became very popular. So I, I saw Dan speak, and I loved his line. He says, there are only seven lessons in the universe. The key is how often you have to learn them. And, you know, being in the investment side of things, immediately I applied that to myself and went, oh my gosh, you've learned that 612 times. And that's why you need what I call like the safety net of the approach you're taking, you know, that, that stock scores has. It's, it's, it really gives you some weapons so you don't succumb to the same mistakes. Yeah, we have to not only be able to find the right stocks to buy, but recognize that we're going to be wrong some of the time. Mm -hmm. And so you need to have a plan for what to do when you're wrong and how to use stop loss orders and and where you put those, because if you use stop loss orders in the wrong way, they can actually be very destructive to your performance, even though the idea of limiting the size of your losses is a good one. If you do it incorrectly, it's going to cost you money overall. So these are other things, again, so simple. If you just look at a chart, I'll, I'll show you where to put your stops. 
I'll show you what times to avoid a stock, even if it's a strong stock, why you want to avoid it and why you want to wait for those pullbacks. You know, we're seeing pullbacks in commodity stocks right now. That may create a great opportunity in the next two weeks to buy some of these hot stocks on sale. And it's not hard. You just have to know how to, what to look for and, and how to manage risk and how to manage emotion through the process. Let me, um, you know, you've, you've just been touching on this and I just wanted to, you know, some areas in the market that you're seeing right now and in your charts and approach that you think, okay, they got potential and they've on my radar and other areas you say, no, there's nothing to suggest I want any part of that. Yeah. So there's two times I like to buy weakness. One is buying weakness in strong areas. So that would be the commodity groups to keep an eye on. Uh, again, not there today, but could be very soon. And the other thing I like to do is find the areas that have been weak for a long time that are then starting to break those long-term downward trends. And I think one area to keep a close eye on, and again, I want to emphasize, maybe not today, but could be very soon, is the travel stocks, particularly airlines in the U.S. They've been doing quite well lately, and they're now testing the long-term downward trend that started when the COVID pandemic hit. So they've been really underperforming and doing terribly for a couple of years, but they're now testing that upward trend line. You're seeing buyers coming back to the American airlines, and, and it may be global airlines as well. I just noticed with the American airlines some strength in the last couple of weeks. There's an ETF that I like to follow for that group. It's called, well, the symbol is JETS, J-E-T-S. It basically takes in all of the U.S. airlines. And if you go look at a three-year weekly chart of JETS, you can see that it's testing the downward trend line. And if it can break that in the next week, month, whatever, then it's some area to consider. Similar situation with biotech. It is, it's been in a long, ugly downward trend, but it's starting to test the downward trend lines. Not there today, but something to keep an eye on for that long-term turnaround. You know, to find the next energy sector. The energy sector did this a year and a half ago when it broke its downward trend. Now, what's the next group that's going to do that, going to reverse that long-term weakness? And again, I hope people are listening. Well, and again, I'm going to just say it again. You can go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and sign up for the webinar. Obviously, it's limited because of the nature of the technology. So do sign up. Um, and I, by the way, getting your e-copy of uh, The Minus Investor is worth that period uh, for people there. But uh, again, this is the kind of thing you'll be talking about is, you know, you've watched these tra uh, these stocks or these groups in this big downward trend and there's a, a low line where they created the bottom and it's where they broke and so you've got these two trend lines going down and you're talking about it breaks that that upper end of that downward trend that's what you're looking for the upper end of the downward trend and that signals maybe brand new trading day brand new day and so uh that's what i mean i puts a smile on my face it's fun it's fun to look at this stuff yeah it is fun you know i've been uh traveling a lot over the years and I always bring my laptops because it's not a vacation without the market as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> there you go. I think my wife nods her head knowing what I'm like that way. <laughs> Are you reading another piece of research? You know, the most boring guy in show business, Mike Campbell. But uh, so Tyler, let's, let's leave off with this because I know you've, you've got to do your webinar. But uh, again, I just want to pull on all the people you've talked to over the years. I mean, literally thousands. You've talked, instructed thousands of people. And, uh, you know, the COVID didn't stop you because you went on Zoom. Okay, give me what comes to mind if I say, 
what's the big mistake I want to warn my son not to make? Because you see it all the time. Oh, there's so many. And by the way, when I list these things off, don't think for a moment that I haven't done these as well. This is why I'm an expert on, on mistakes because I've made them all. I think uh, the inability to manage risk, you know, people hate to take the pain of a loss. And so they'll hang on to losers and, and they go into a trade without a real consideration of what the risk of that trade is. So I'm going to talk today about how to overcome that problem. Um, and then the other one that's you know quite well known is just the fear of missing out. People that chase strength in an irrational way because they see the stock going up day after day after day. And so they finally come in and that's usually when the bubble bursts and then they end up taking a loss as well. So fear of missing out and poor risk management too very common mistakes that are easy to overcome with some simple tools. Uh, earlier on in the show, I was talking about the sad passing of Jim Dines, uh, who wrote the book Mass Psychology. And this is one of the things he talks about, is that the pressure builds. Like, I'm not inside of Kathy uh, Wood's arc. You know, I don't have that ETF. Okay, but then it keeps going up. Oh, my God, maybe I should have it. Then it goes higher. Oh, I really should have it. And then I finally, I got to get it. And that's about the top. You know, I remember learning that lesson very clearly. It's a long time ago, but actually looking at myself as a gauge of when to do the opposite of what my emotions uh, were telling. So it's, uh, as you said a moment ago, you think you've made these mistakes. Believe me, uh, we, we'll share that over a cup of coffee one day because we can go back and forth for a while. Tyler, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, stockscores.com stockcourse.ca so you can't you can't miss it stockcourse.com but go to mikesmoneytalks.ca the webinar starts 15 minutes after the show here great stuff as usual thanks for taking time hey great to be with you have a good weekend time now for the shocking stat of the week now i'm going to tell you this is what keeps me up at night as i said earlier on it's a problem in the credit markets which i stated numerous occasions i think is going to start in the emerging markets then it's going to spread to the more developed economies i mean but this impact could be seen to dramatically increase interest rates. For example, it's obviously already happening in some of these developing emerging markets because it's all about declining confidence in the currencies, which is the main ingredient, by the way. If you want, I get asked all the time, how do you get runaway inflation? No, it's not about the policy other than confidence leaves the currency so dramatically. But we're starting to see it, which is my point, and it brings me to my st shocking stat of the week. Actually, I should say st sets of stats. We talk about the rise in sovereign debt, absolutely. But nowhere is that problem more severe than in emerging markets that borrowed in U.S. dollars. Well, they had to do it because no one wanted to lend them money in their own home currency because they're so worried about the purchasing power of that currency being devalued at a moment's notice. So they take that currency risk, at least the relative currency risk, out by borrowing in U.S. dollars, which means they pay their interest and principal in U.S. dollars. And this is just so key to understand. This is a problem, the shocking stat. Since 2020, January 2020, the U.S. dollar has been rising relative to every major market currency, which means, hey, those interest payments, that principal payment on the debt became more expensive. Why? Because they have to sell their currency and then buy a rising U.S. dollar. You want to know how big the problem is? Well, listen to this. Since January 2020, the Turkish lira is down 59% versus the U.S. dollar. The Sri Lankan rupee is down 43%. The Syrian pound down 85%. Lebanese pound down 91%. Think about those numbers. Argentinian peso down 60%.
Venezuelan Boulevard down 98%. Well, think about what that just did to debt repayments in U.S. dollars. They're so expensive. But it's even more than that. All commodities are, of course, priced in U.S. dollars. So, you know, if we think the price of oil or wheat or corn has gone up in Canadian dollar terms, can you imagine the price increase for people living in those countries whose currencies have fallen out of bed? And it's already having a massive impact in terms of social unrest in those countries. I mean, you might have seen the news on Sri Lanka, maybe Pakistan, Turkey, Peru. Why? Because the price of gas, we don't like $2 gas. Can you imagine if your currency had fallen that dramatically? And food prices are exploding. This is why I've said for, well, it's well over a year. If you want to see social unrest and political change, just raise these two variables, energy and food. As I say, already happening, though, in those countries. But also, give you an example, Sri Lanka has now suspended its bond payments. Why? Because they've got to save their U.S. dollar reserves to buy energy and food. Well, you know what? Somebody lent them that money. That's where the problem begins. I think that there's going to be a massive problem in the emerging markets when it comes to debt repayment of those loans that were made in U.S. dollars. At least that's what I'm watching. When I say we're living in a period of historic change, this is exactly what I mean. Come on, if the dollar-denominated debt's not repaid or some problem with it, you've got a huge earthquake in the credit markets. It's going to be profound. And let alone, as I said, the social unrest that's caused by the rise in food and energy prices. A couple of things I want to get to today with the real estate market. One is something that Ozzy and I have been talking about for a while, and that is the upward pressure on the real estate market in terms of demand, because, of course, we've got, uh, you know, the estimate is something like 1.3 million newcomers coming into Canada over a three-year period. Obviously, they're going to live somewhere. Ozzy's got a little more sophisticated take than that, though, so I'm going to bring him in right now. You can find Ozzy at ozbuzz.ca. So, Ozzy, let's talk about that immigration pressure. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. In a way, you can sort of salute our government. I know we don't normally salute the government, but the ERIRCC has launched some six immigration streams where they transfer some international students and temporary foreign workers into permanent residence. And their goal was to do that for some 90,000 people. And so we have all these different classes. We have economic immigrants, family class, humanitarian. We have actually concentrating on health workers, essential workers, and French speakers, and all of these wonderful things. And they put it all together in a pot. They came up with 405,000 immigrants last year, just for the second time since 1867. Amazing. Well, again, uh, what was kind of interesting within the, what you've been writing about on Ozbuzz is that, uh, you know, that we have a lot of people here, for example, as a student, and they just sort of go back into the stream in Canada. I mean, they already, you know, are well integrated in terms of language, in terms of their uh, sort of higher ability, let's call it employ employability. So it's not quite as brand new coming into the country. They're already here. So that would sort of, to me, ease off the pressure on the, the buy side. Yes, so right. You know, we're quoting these numbers, 100,000 people in B.C., but according to uh, Benjamin Tal, uh, he figures that 70% um, or more of them were already here because of, as you say, students and temporary visas, which instead of when their visa expired, they were invited to stay and become permanent residents. And the neat thing is that they speak the language mostly, they're employable, participate in the housing market, and that whole process of immigration is done away with. 
But as you point out, what we don't realize, they were already part of the market last year. So part of that dream and, 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 and ownership and so on came from them as well, and they participated to a large extent in the market. And the question remains to me and whether the same is going to be true this year. Uh, the other side, of course, is something we talked about a bit ago, is that in-migration within the country. So that certainly continues pressure. I mean, for example, if, if somebody's moving uh, out to British Columbia, which seems to have net in-migration on a regular basis, well, that is new housing demand. You know, so that's another aspect of this. I think the number was 100,000 people moving into British Columbia in 2021, of which, off the top of my head, something like 30% were coming from other parts of Canada. Yeah, mind-boggling. Actually, you were one of the forerunners of forecasting this. I remember maybe four or five years ago you talked about Victoria. I mean, it is our banana belt in Canada, right? And people, if they want to immigrate somewhere from inside the country, whether they're in Toronto or snow-shoveling Montreal, Victoria seems to be in it. And it is certainly one of the biggest price increases we've seen. And according to TerraNet, who just came out with a report, a national report about uh, values in March, Victoria, Mission Abbotsford, and Hamilton have the biggest price increases. So there's no doubt it's that group that targets uh, a market in specific uh, helps that market. And we won't tell anybody in Vancouver that the people in Victoria get about 60 sunnier days a year than in Vancouver. So we won't even mention that part. Let me come to, you know, our, part of that, though, is that talking about where the market's at, what are you hearing? I just I know you know we don't have the research, but I but I know you talk to a ton of people in the industry. What are you starting to hear in terms of activity? Well, the interesting thing is we had just a meeting of investors and real estate club members on Tuesday night, and it was clear from the realtors and, and investors there's a change in the in sort of a wind change going on. And you and I talked about it. I felt in February that the high was in place. And we, you never can call the absolute high, but we're now hearing cancelled deals. Or yes, there were multiple offers, but in the end, they all backed out. Uh, and so there is a, sort of a smell of a slowdown going on. At the same time, uh, Devon Roberts, who is a commercial real estate specialist in the Fraser Valley, the commercial market is is absolutely incredibly on fire with with uh, acreages like industrial acreages in Delta going for between three and six million dollars an acre and in Chilliwack at three million dollars an acre. And I guess part of the foreign investor no longer being able to buy residential real estate, that may very well be going to accelerate because we're going to have this, uh, whoever the foreign investor may be, he now is going to shift into commercial real estate. So the change from maybe the hot housing market into a commercial market may be what we may be witnessing. And we'll certainly keep an eye on that, Ozzy. Obviously important there, but in the meantime, people can go to ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca, get the latest from Ozzy, and you go out and have a terrific week. Well, thank you very much, Mike, and, and I'll do that. And I, I should mention to you that at the meeting, somebody was talking about, you know, the... Um, that, that, that they knew a couple where the husband was really kind of mean to his wife all the time and unfriendly and so on. They said, and how do you handle the stress? And she said, well, I smile every morning at him, I say bye-bye, and then I clean the toilet bowl with his toothbrush. <laughs> I'll leave that with a charming thought. Talk about your bad breath. Ozzy, have a great weekend. Thanks, and you too. I'm going to go live to the trading desk now. I've got lots of questions for Victor Adair. Something that was bothering me during the week, Vic, was I was sort of saying, man, that commodity trade's got a lot more company. When we started to talk about that, and it was the February 2020, 
uh, Outlook conference, calling it the coming commodity bull market or whatever we called it, but also talking about agriculture specifically, been talking about those themes. I'm now seeing those themes kind of picked up in a lot uh, more places. Uh, the other one uh, was bond market, like stay out of the bond market. Rates are going up. I'm seeing a lot more company. And you know what? It's making me uncomfortable. Well, Mike, one of the uh, one of the old things, I guess, with trading was to try to figure out how much of a, a move is already priced in. You know, if you're bullish gold and you rush out and buy it and uh, because you think it's going higher, but you've picked the top, you know, you feel bad. So you, you know, we're, we're always looking for timing. And, and, and as I've said so many times on your show, uh, the, the, the trick here is to keep the time frame of your analysis and the time frame of your trading in sync. And, and that's way harder to do than it sounds. Let me come to interest rates in that regard, because I certainly thought it was noteworthy all of a sudden, I think it was like Thursday or Friday this week, I was hearing, oh, the Fed may go 75 basis points, you know, not a half a percent, three quarters of a percent. And I'm just kind of interested, as I say, how that consensus starts to build. I mean, wasn't it 15 minutes ago they were debating whether they're going to do a quarter point? I mean, that's the way it feels to me. Yeah. And last night it was transitory. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah I, I think the the interest rate market here is is the story. Uh, it, certainly this week in the markets, you're right. The Fed and, and other people have been talking tough about interest rates. Uh, the, the, the market, the, the rate of change. This is for me the focus. How quickly the, the speed has picked up on these expectations as to where interest rates will be in the future and, you know, why they will be there and what impact it will have. The Fed clearly wants to cool inflation, but can they bring inflation down? I mean, just for starter, can they do that? But can they do it without causing a recession? And they don't want to have that. I, made, I put a point on my blog here a, a month or so ago saying, you know, we've got the midterm elections coming up. We like to think of the Fed as being apolitical. I'm not sure that's a, true or not, but let's just say that. But maybe there's some pressure. I mean, would, for instance, if the American public is, is just, just really fascinated or fixated on inflation, that's the most important issue for them, what price would the politicians be willing to pay you know, to kill inflation? Would they throw the stock market under the bus, for instance? You know, that kind of thing. Anyway, these rapidly rising interest rates are impacting stocks, clearly. But one of the big stories here, Mike, is, is how they're impacting the currency markets. Well, let me come, not leave stocks for a sec, because it comes back to a conversation we had uh, two, uh, two weeks ago. I think it was April 4th. We had the former president of the New York Federal Reserve, uh, Bill Dudley, say, in uh, quotes, you better listen to Powell. And he said, in quotes, this would mean hiking the federal funds rate considerably higher than currently anticipated. One way or another, to get inflation under control, the Fed will need to push bond yields higher. We're getting that. And stock prices lower. We're getting that. So that came back to me as just a little, uh, again, don't ignore what's going on here. And it's, it's the thing you and I talk about all the time, I know. But people have to keep their risk profile front and center. What are you doing to manage your risk? Are you just falling asleep out there? Always readjust your portfolio accordingly. And, uh, and as of course, you as a professional trader, that's exactly what you do is you look at what 
you know, your risk and try and manage it that way. But that's what I kept thinking when I was watching the stock market. I mean, didn't we get a pretty clear warning from some guy who's got an inside edge in the Federal Reserve? Well, we've had him. Uh, Summers has also been make, making the same point. I think Dudley also said something to the effect that if we have a recession now, it won't be as bad as if we have one later, you know, like get it over with it. In other words, there's been a cacophony of people calling for higher interest rates, but kind of hidden in the background. But but like the elephant in the room is the Fed is also going to change their policy from buying 100 or 120 billion dollars worth of paper every month to, to being a seller. You know, they're going to be there's going to be additional upward pressure on financial conditions as they stop buying bonds and start selling bonds into the market. So the bond market, the whole curve has been pressured and that's having these impacts on stocks, on commodities and on currencies. As you said, though, the rate of change is, change is what's so noticeable. That's what has an impact uh, on it. I, I don't want to run out of time without a couple of other things here, Vic, and uh, talking specifically about the currency markets. U.S. dollar super strong. Again, another one of, uh, you know, I'm not saying it to pat ourselves in the back. I'm saying it to say if your model's good, you know, and I'm talking, you know me, I look the macro, the big long-term stuff. But, hey, money looks for safety. It goes to the U.S. dollar. I think that's what we're experiencing right now. Plus the higher rate, uh, you know, prospect, that makes it more attractive to boot. But, come on, obviously problems in Europe. They don't know what's going to happen in the French election, as an example. Yeah, one of my mantras for years has been that capital comes to America for safety and opportunity. I mean, we saw during the dot-com boom, for instance, that the U.S. dollar was going up because capital was coming to America to buy tech stocks. And because that was going, you know, the stock market would go up in the American market, it became a, a virtuous circle. I think right now with American interest rates, or let's say American monetary policy, much more aggressive than any other place in the world, including Canada, you know, that is putting a premium bid in the American dollar. And it's really showing up in the Japanese yen. And the Japanese yen, I'm, I mean, it's just hugely important on the world stage because they've got trillions of dollars worth of savings over there. So what they do, and they move money offshore if there's no opportunities in Japan, and then they'll move it back to Japan if they see that that's the right thing to do. The yen is at a 20-year low against the U.S. dollar. It has fallen something like 20%, I guess, from uh, January of last year. It's down 12% just in the last uh, six, seven weeks. Because the yen is weakening the way it is, the Korean won to, to remain competitive here is at a 13, 14 year low. And just this week, the Chinese RMB or yuan has also started to fall. So we've just got this US dollar super strong, and that's just impacting these currency markets. And Mike, you know, I, I got to get this in in case we run out of time. When I see really rapid rate of change moves in an important market, I think to myself, somebody is wrong. You know, somebody's on the wrong side of this trade. We're going to get another long-term uh, capital market, long-term credit, whatever that was back in the 90s, a long-term capital market. S somebody is wrong, and there's going to be a major margin call, and that'll probably exacerbate the current problems. Uh, yeah, such a great point, uh, and you're right. We don't have time to get into it, so we'll have to, because I think you're talking about the essence. Yeah, not, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I have been incredibly critical of, I know a lot of economists in our country, and so many of them sp uh, sp uh, spit out the mantra, we can afford the deficit. 
I'm saying you're saying that because you don't understand the credit markets. You've never made a trade in the credit markets. You don't understand the structure of the credit markets and the kind of vehicles that are in play. And we're already seeing signs. That's my big worry. You know, as I alluded to earlier in the show, uh, we've already seen signs of this in other, you know, all of a sudden bonds scream higher. The, the yields scream higher. We've seen obviously dramatic moves, as you say, the rate of change. But uh, I think you've just come right down to what, this is a key understanding for people going forward. But back to the yen, you read my mind. I put it in a note earlier this week. We got to talk yen because what? They're the biggest holder of U.S. treasuries. You know, they're bigger than China. Okay. Well, are they going to keep letting their yen fall? Oh, but what if they raise rates to protect it? But they've been spending a fortune to keep their rates down. You know, the central bank. This is a big, big story. Well, if the Bank of Japan has been keeping their foot on the throat of the bond market there. They do not want bond yields to go higher. So they've got a Hobson's choice here in a way. They can try to keep interest rates down, but to do that, they're going to forfeit the yen. They want to try to save the yen from getting weaker. And by the way, a weaker yen means that all of their import costs are going through the roof. So you can't have it both ways is kind of the problem here. And, you know, we'll see where this plays out. I'm, I'm just watching it. I see the drama, and I always think, okay, what is going to happen because of this? Yeah, it's back to this is a huge debt issue across the world. You cannot ignore the credit markets. You can't ignore what the impact on the currency markets is. And you're right. We'll see how it plays out. And you're uh, again, I'm with you. It's a huge issue. Thanks for finding time for us, Vic. Hey, Mike. Always fun to talk with you. And Vic will always, of course, update you with victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. You can check out the charts, get a little more onto what Victor's thinking. I'll take a break. You know what? Yeah, you're right. It's a goofy. Time now for this week's goofy. I'm going to start today with a quote by Alexander Stahl. He's chairman, chief investment officer of Bergraben Holdings AG. Sums up the current energy crisis pretty darn well, which, by the way, has Morgan Stanley predicting $130 oil in the third quarter. In quotes, EU energy policy was man-made and deliberate, not a historical accident. It was a result of years of complacency, ignorance, arrogance, or vested interest in corruption. Nothing has changed. Politicians must be held accountable. Well, Man-made and deliberate, yes. Stanford economist Hanno Lutzing gives us a prime example with the refusal of Germany to reverse its decision to shut down its remaining three nuclear plants. He states, Germany saying it can't reverse shutdown of nuclear power plants because of a complex regulatory process is like an airline captain refusing to make an emergency landing at an airport because of nighttime noise regulations. But just as important, I have very little faith that any accountability is about to happen. I mean, there's no way the green energy contingent, whether it's in politics, academia, or the media, is going to admit that the higher natural gas prices as a result of the determination to limit fossil fuel production is a direct cause of the massive hikes in fertilizer prices and the resulting food shortages, which have many analysts worried about starvation in some emerging markets. Which brings me to the Goofy Award, which goes to U.S. climate czar, former Senator John Kerry, who said this week that the world's reliance on the fossil fuels should be limited potentially to a decade. Though natural gas burns cleaner than coal when used to generate electricity, it should not be part of a long-term climate strategy without emissions control technology. 
You know what? I never know, though, if politicians like Mr. Kerry either don't know or understand, or maybe they think the rest of us don't know. Although when it comes to the failure to make the connection between natural gas and fertilizer, I suspect it's the former. But how about this, that he says, we're going to limit the use of fossil fuels to 10 years. I mean, does he not understand that every major forecast calls for fossil fuels to still make up the majority, maybe 60 to 85% of the world's energy mix by 2050? Don't they understand that the necessary minerals and raw resources to transition to renewable energy and EVs are not available? As the CEO of uh, the electric truck maker Rivian stated this week, when you're talking about manufacturing batteries, 90 to 95% of the supply chain doesn't exist. I mean, I could go on, but the goofy goes to the former senator, current climate czar, and others in the climate crowd for showing that they have no sign that they've learned anything from the current energy crisis. That's resulted in huge spike, uh, spikes in prices and blackouts for months. This is well before the Ukraine invasion. And you know what? By failing to learn anything, to acknowledge some of those lessons, guarantees that we've got many more problems to come. Keep in mind, by the way, that we've got the webinar here with Tyler Bullhorn starting in 15 minutes here on Saturday. So, again, sign into that. Just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. And I was thinking again this week that one of the reasons to continue to go to Money Talks tweets or Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook is that so many of these stories aren't followed. You don't hear about them. So many facts so many different opinions. You just simply don't hear about them. And there was such a long list. Uh, maybe that quote by Rivian uh, is, is a great example. Their CEO saying 90 to 95% of the supply chain for batteries doesn't even exist right now. Well, I would think that's kind of important to understand. I mean, there's so many other things. As I say, when I go throughout the course of the week, I see so many things that should be informing our discussions about these major public policies they just aren't there so again that's my sell point for go on to money talks tweets michael campbell's facebook or go to mikesmoneytalks.ca that's michael campbell's money talks facebook by the way in the meantime i hope you have a terrific weekend thanks for listening This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet. 